You're listening to the Editorial Intelligence special broadcast from the Names Not Numbers Symposium. More information on namesnotnumbers.com. Good morning, everyone. Um, it's good to see you up at the castle. It's only 8.15, but we're all raring to go. I'm Matthew Guiver, the editor of Management Today, and the session this morning is about speed. Slow is the new fast. What's the best model for sustainable business? Um, we, I think we first started hearing the, about slow, if I'm right, in the 90s, and it came from Italy, didn't it, with the slow food movement. Um, and uh, Carl Honoré, who was one of those sort of New Yorker-type people, wrote, uh, wrote a book about it. And one of the things that he said about speed and slow was that turbo capitalism has become laser-focused so that people only deliver one graph, one figure. But the slow credo is about seeing the wider picture and realizing that everything is connected. It's the idea that business is about more than jacking up the share price or maximizing the bonuses, seeing that investments also have a social impact. Um, and I think the reason it's come back onto the agenda now is that there's a, there's a general feeling that the, that the crash, the events of 2007, 2008, probably had an awful lot to do with speed and everything going rather too quickly. And as um, with many things in life, when you do go too fast, you stumble or you crash. And indeed, that's what's happened. So now, this slow finance um, movement, which is being sort of talked about and written about a lot, it seems to be based on the, the, the old-fashioned idea of long-term value investment as opposed to the sort of things that investment bankers um, get up to with collateralized debt obligations and things that happen in sort of microseconds. Um, so we've got a panel here of three very different individuals to talk about speed and sustainability. To my right is Henry Chevalier of Aspel, who makes cider. And in the middle, we have Simon Walker of the IOD. And on my right, we have Darcy Wilson-Reimer from Clinton Cards. He's recently arrived at Clinton Cards from Starbucks and is um, rolling his sleeves up, getting ready to make sure that Clinton's is going to be sustainable into the future. But I'd like to start with you, Henry, if I may. Your, yours is a family business, isn't it? And it's one that's developed over many generations. You plant your trees and watch them mature, and then you harvest the fruit and make them into your cider. What is, how does running a family business sort of affect the speed at which you go and the, and the decisions that you make about your future? Well, I... <clears throat> What we do, I mean, it's the, the, and I promise not to make too many Apple metaphors through this morning, but we're, I'm a manufacturer and a grower. Um, I buy trees, I put them in the ground, I wait for them to produce apples, and then I, I press the fruit that comes off of them, um, which is one model, and it's what my family's done pretty much for the last 400 years. Now, there's, a, there's another way of doing it. I mean, I think no one, it hasn't escaped anyone's notice that cider's the, the hot ticket in the drinks industry and has been over the last eight or nine years. But it's, it's one of these industries that is, is very cyclical. Um, and for all the, the hype of how well the industry's doing at the moment, it's had some pretty catastrophic lows. Um, because there are different ways of making cider. I mean, the way we make it is a traditional way. It's the way my ancestors have always made it. Um, it, it really is it's the point of difference. Most people think that actually, you know, what is cider? It is, a, it is a fermented alcoholic beverage that comes from apples. Well, yes, on the whole it does, but actually most of the cider that people consume is made from uh, apple concentrate, which is a lot of it is grown and processed in the UK. A huge amount of it is brought in from places like Poland and, and, and Belarus. Uh, anywhere that the, the commodity markets make it cheapest. Uh, and then you super ferment it and you ferment with sugar syrup and uh, get an 18% liquid and it gets processed and diluted and put into a bottle in about 30 days. Well, we actually haven't finished fermenting our product after 30 days. Um, we're lucky as, as a family business with, that we're able to make decisions that actually suit our agenda. So... You know, my passion is actually making great cider. We relaunched our cider 12 years ago, actually, when 
the cider industry was in probably one of its worst periods of decline. It was defined by three litre bottles of plastic white stuff that was very strong and very cheap and the target market was Tramp Student or Wurzel. That was about where everyone went went for um, and we launched relaunched the product on the basis that if you actually wind the clock back about 300 years cider actually 60% of all the alcohol consumed in the UK was cider and it was very very high quality stuff it was compared to champagne the gentry that's what they had on their table instead of French wine so we relaunched our product on that basis and it was about making a great product with the uh, the credentials that my, my ancestors gave it. Uh, and we were able to make that decision, and most people thought we were mad at the time. And we were, we were lucky in that the cider industry sorted itself out. We had a good bit of legislation from government on duty in 2003. Uh, and people decided, big companies decided that they could reinvest in the industry again. Um, and they actually upped the ante. They made a better quality product. And, and, and we managed to ride on the, on the coattails of that. We were doing very well as a, a well-known Irish brand that came along and did a fantastic piece of advertising that even made me thirsty when I watched it. Um, and the whole industry's moved along. And, and we're, we're at an interesting junction at the moment is because this strategy for us has worked extremely well. Um, but in fact, it's almost worked too well. So we've got to have a decision about whether we keep on moving down the down the line that we're moving now, which will involve investment and, and, and extra money, or do we actually just, just ramp so it back? So well, let's, let's talk about that. It, you know, it's a family business, so you're, you're, you know, you're carrying those generations that have been, that have been in the past, and I, I would imagine you're, you're, you're hopeful that that will carry on for some time to come. What is, how does sort of sustainability work in, in, in family businesses? Because it's, cl it's clearly not about quarterly figures, a fast buck, getting in there, getting out. I mean, what's the sort of the time scale that you think about for it? One generation to the next. A lot of the work we do now is on the basis that the next generation will probably reap the benefits. And we're about to launch in China. I can't actually see that, well, unless we're very, very lucky, I can't see that that's, that's a reward that we're necessarily going to see in our tenure. I think that's a, that's a long-term investment on, on our behalf. And I think the thing is with... Our business, we've been very lucky in that it's always remained very, very tight, and, and it's 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 one member of the family actually gets the dominant position. It's never been split through the generations. So if you take another cider maker, um, the largest cider maker, Bulmers, um, it's split very early on after Esmond founded it. His children had three children, and it split three ways, and then it continued to split. And I think by the time, I think the fact is right, by the time they actually got bought by Scottish Courage, they had 64 shareholders, family shareholders, who had no direct involvement in the business. But they had their say about what the dividend was going to be. And so they did and, have shareholders. And that's a much more difficult way to run a business. Absolutely, yeah. 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 You can come up with madcap ideas. And, and um, I, I think if we'd been a... Uh, a limited company, if we had more shareholders, we really, really would have struggled to do our relaunch 12 years ago. But we thought it was the right thing to do. We thought it was a good idea. So we just, we just carried on regardless. Now, we can't, we can't talk about speed and the crash without getting onto the world of finance and the mm. banks. And we were talking about banks mm. last night. There's a lot of noise at the moment about um, things like this, as you'll see this morning's FT. There he is, big, big bad Bob again. Um, Six five point seven million pound tax. The the banks are saying that they're doing all they all they can for for mm. smaller businesses. How do how do you feel that you, do you get a sympathetic hearing and do they give you what you what you need at the moment or not? Well, my personal experience with our current bank is that um, the conversations that we have with our relationship manager don't appear to be translated back up that business. So it feels like we're part of an agenda that our bank has and we're kind of the collateral in it at the moment, is, is how it feels. It doesn't sound like a very happy relationship. It's been a little, little turbulent over the last eight, nine months, yeah. And what are you yeah. going to do about that then? We're actually going to, we're going to change banks. It's, it's the only option that we've got to do. We've got to, it's finance partner is the same as your distribution partner, the same as your Apple partner. Everybody that you buy things from, if you want a, a sustainable business, you have to, that's you know, one of the cornerstones of your business. You need right. to have, a, have a, somebody who's sitting in front of you who actually isn't talking about 
one year hence, which is really where we got into difficulties with our bank, is that you know, we, we came for a rene renegotiation and the assumptions we'd made about the renegotiations re were not the, um, so it wasn't the criteria they appeared to be working right. to. So we've really set the agenda out for our banking for, um, we, we want to be with someone that's actually going to grow with us and, and support us over a, a 10 year paradigm minimum rather than just what's going to happen in the next financial year. Good. Now Simon, can I bring you in there, banks? What, what are you hearing about from your members about banking in the UK and whether or not they're helping businesses be sustainable, i.e., you know, get through the next few difficult years? I mean, I would imagine your, your, your members are famously vocal. What, what are the messages you're getting at the moment? I think quite a lot of the time we hear a very similar message to, to what we've just heard, that there are a lot of fine words at local level, but uh, that doesn't happen um, there, there are national policies that end up sort of overriding that, and there is a lack of capital uh, availability to people who really need it for, for expansion, for investment. Having said that, a lot of companies are sitting on quite a lot of capital at the moment because they're nervous. Um, but I do think there's a, there's a problem with the banking system. Um, I mean, the, the, at the moment we have a new bank trying to enter the British market, uh, Metro, Bank. That, will be the, that will be the first new bank for 100 years. And there has to be something wrong with our overall environment, our overall business environment, that the barriers to entry are so great that you haven't had a new bank come in for 100 years. Um, and it seems to me that the sort of relentless of tendency to oligopoly uh, amongst those big players is something that needs to be broken down. I mean, I, d I, don't, I don't believe government should be hugely active um, in involving itself in business affairs, but it is its job to draw up the parameters and set the overall rules. And something is wrong with that situation. Um, I don't think the answer is regulation. Indeed, I suspect that's, that's a big part of the problem. And all the calls for more regulation, uh, because people look at... Bob Diamond's salary or whatever seem to me a complete distraction from the fact that we actually want the free market to operate uh, in this area uh, and we're not really getting it. Isn't, isn't one of the problems that, I mean, if, if, if you look at Barclays, it, it's fantastically difficult to earn a living from retail banking in this country because people aren't willing to pay for it, are they? And it's much easier to, ha you know, to, to sit there and watch all your dealers within Barcat making tens of millions of pounds in a, you know, in a split second than going through the, the, you know, the horrific sweat of trying to squeeze money out yeah. of you know, either, either individuals or, 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 or small businesses. I mean, there's a lack of acceptance, isn't there, in the UK that banking is something um, that, that, that probably in the end you know, you're going to have to pay rather more for than, than, than we do at the moment. Yes, I suspect a lot of customers individually feel that the bureaucracy and the sort of huge infrastructure of their local bank is something they rightly don't want to pay for. They think it's padded out and there's an awful lot of stuff in there that they shouldn't have to pay for. But I do think there's a psychological problem there. I and mean, people, because they had free banking for decades, expect to get it. Sure. And I think that's just somewhere you, you need a culture change. Sure. Now, Darcy, sustainable... How sustainable was Clinton's looking to you when you, when they, you received the call? Because that's another a family business. Could you explain the, the background to what's, what's going on there? Yes, yeah, so I think um, um, so, so Don Loon, who, who founded the business, uh, a great, great, great entrepreneur, uh, you know, started in 1968 selling greeting cards out the boot of his car. And I just love the fact that he, when he was doing that, he knew what stock he had in his car, how much he paid for it, what he was going to sell for it, and he had his profit and loss account, his balance sheet in his head. Uh, and uh, as he built his business to, uh, we, we have 800 stores, uh, he's still doing that uh, today. And so the thing in our business about sustainability is actually, it's more about capability. Uh, in order for it to be sustained, it's taking all of that knowledge and the way the business has been run for 40 years, which is through one person and pretty much uh, made all the decisions is then it is uh, the way to make it sustainable is to actually build the capability bottom up so that the business is no longer reliant you know on one particular person of course the greeting cards per se is highly sustainable uh, you know at least as, as far into the future as I can see because um, you know everybody loves to receive a card 
And, um, you know, people talked about the whole Gen Y thing and young people, but we were, we were having a conversation earlier. Hands up those with kids. Okay, any, and um, have any of your children at a young age of four, five, or six bought a birthday card to give to their classmates for the, for the birthday that were invited to? Or, in fact, at Christmas, bought a box of Christmas cards to write to their class, you know, age eight, nine, ten. So actually, they, people start pretty, you know, basically pretty young. And, um, and I, I mean, again, I don't know about you, but at Christmas, I was very careful about what card I bought my wife or what card I bought, bought my kids. Because in, um, we're probably the only retailer where when you come into our stores, you're not buying for yourself, right? You're buying for somebody else. And what you buy and the words it says, etc., says something about you and your relationship with the person. And therefore, people aren't going to like trade down or do that because it's about emotion, it's about love. Um, and so therefore, because the customer need in our case is helping people celebrate love, and that's the customer need that's uh, endurable and sustainable. But the most important thing in sustainability, I believe, in business, it's really um, understanding your people and, and putting them at the heart of decision making, understanding your customer, make sure you're servicing a need, and then innovation. And uh, so, that, I mean, that's, that's, that's the task going forward. Now, over the years, you've worked for a number of really interesting companies, Starbucks, Unilever, I mean, have you always felt that the finance people, the banks, have sort of understood, you know, long term, or have you have you found it sort of difficult negotiating with them that they want they want something back far far too quickly? I think, actually, no. I think finance directors. I've never had an issue ever in my career about a finance director having a very short term measure. I think I do have I have worked for finance directors that like to control things tightly and want lots of detail and transparency. But I think finance people fundamentally understand you know, the, long, the long term. Um, I think where things I find break down is less with finance people. It's about bureaucracy and layers of management. That's where things, that's where things break down. And it's uh, in the old model of having you know, middle managers and senior managers and boards. That all of that, we're, it's great that that's disappearing. But unless you have uh, direct access from the top to those people that are serving customers and you truly understand what they're saying and what customers are saying, then you'll make all sorts of short-term decisions because you're, you're, lock, you're, you're looking at the wrong things. So I think the whole short-term, long-term thing is largely, um, it's the wrong debate. If that's about bad management or, or, or good management. With the banks, I mean, it's a difficult, um, I'm a, I'm a you know, pretty simple person. I, I don't, I'm not overly sophisticated. And when I look at it, I don't understand, and nobody's been able to explain it to me, this whole thing of you, you lent too much, you took too many risks, uh, so you rein it all in. You don't want to take any risks. The banks don't want to take risks with us or other people. And then, um, you know, co cost of capital's going up. And then we say, lend more, lend more, lend more. And that conundrum, I haven't figured out. In the end, I have to make a decision. Do I believe in what I'm doing? When I go to the bank, I have to, I have to absolutely believe this is the right thing to do and I need the money. And the bank manager or whoever, they're normally about half my age, um, you know, looking at my business model, telling me what's good and bad. But they, I have to absolutely, they have to absolutely believe it's the right thing to do because they're stewards of other people's money. Mm. And it's that, it all breaks down in that navigation, the transparency, the relationships, um, sure. You know, I, um, I really, truly want to um, bash up the bank, you know, my bank, yeah. because I just feel like yeah. it. But the, the reality is, is that it, it's, a, it's a conundrum and we just all have to work together. And Simon, the stewardship of money on the part of the banks has become more complex, hasn't it? Because we, the taxpayer, now own two of the biggies in, in this country. And... I was thinking the other day when the kind of interminable row about Hester's bonus was going on, what an absolutely impossible task they have there at, at, at the moment because they're, they're being kicked, you know, from every direction, aren't they, um, about the levels of remuneration they're getting, which is wrong, the level of lending that they're um, making towards UK business, which is, you know, not enough. But anybody who knows anything about banking 
would, would surely tell you that if they do kind of pile in there and start making kind of fantastic numbers of loans, a proportion of them are going to go wrong, and then we're going to be angry because it's our money that isn't coming back again. Um, what, what do you think the solution for Lloyds and RBS is? To just to, to try and get them off the off the government books as fast as possible? I mean, how would you well, I, I deal with it, it? I think it has to be, because ba government shouldn't own banks, by, almost by definition. I mean, it's obviously crazy. But in a sense, I think it's a distraction to focus just on the banks and just on, particularly on bonuses, because it, it, it is a distraction from the main issues. I mean, what I think is really interesting in, this, um, in these very contrasting companies is the ability to, take, to seek and take a long-term um, view of a company's future. And I think one of the problems we've got with listed companies in particular is, is the sort of the tyranny of quarterly earnings, uh, the tyranny of analysts who are sitting looking at your every move. So when I was at Reuters, for example, and we were embarking on a very radical strategy to restructure the company that in the end saved the company, there's no, there's no question of that. I mean, it was doomed otherwise. Um, but every quarter you had to go public on these figures, and the analysts and the newspapers above all, especially with a household name, were saying, oh, terrible, little disasters looming, and it was all very fragile. Um, and I think that is, there's a real problem in that, and it's wonderful that with a family company, for example, or a private equity-owned company, you can actually afford to take a five-year view, sure. or a John Lewis, which also is able to sort of look forward. So... To me, the, the beauty of corporations is that variety of structures, which can, any of which can be sustainable. The weaknesses, to me, come from the rigidities of a listing system and regulatory requirements, and actually the press as well, and the way the press handles it, because sure. the press increasingly covers business in the way it covers sport. Um, and, you know, we see that on the Surely front page not. of the... <laughs> Of the, F, of, the FT, of the FT, for God's sake, today. The FT is not covering the HBOS findings, which is a really serious issue. Yep. It's covering what Bob Diamond I was know, paid. I know. Um, I'm sorry to criticise the most beloved of newspapers. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but, I mean, they are... God knows what the mail's written. I haven't seen it, fortunately. <laughs> well, I, you know, I, you'd have to leave me to try and defend the fourth estate. I mean, they are... They're simply reflecting, even, even among the FT's readership, a, a, a very deep-seated interest about bonuses and remuneration this, at, at the moment. They're reflecting and, voyeurism. Well, they're reflecting envy. They're reflecting the love of seeing what other people are earning and saying, oh, tut, tut, tut. Plus, we've gained up on our, uh, on our esteemed panel <laughs> leader. Uh, I'm not from the... By the way, I'm no, not... Hold on, hold on. Maybe uh, we should talk about uh, the business model of newspapers and sustainability, because oh, if there's anything that isn't sustainable... <laughs> It's, uh, <laughs> it's, it's history. Um, no, but it, it, it's very difficult, isn't it, at, at, at the moment, and to get away from this kind of anger, this, this, this envy that, that is felt. And if things don't get, get a little bit better relatively, relatively quickly, it, it's going to be hard to, to move away. I mean, I agree, it's utterly self-defeating, this, this, this focus on bonuses, but... It's having an effect. I was speaking to one of the people in the audience here yesterday about pe people within the city, within finance, who've just had enough of it and they're going off to Singapore and Hong Kong or, or, or wherever because they go, they go to a dinner party and even among kind of, you know, reasonable, right-minded, educated people, they feel this kind of hostility towards mm -hmm. them. And, um, but we've also, not, we've also not done a good enough job of explaining to... The, to, to um, citizens and the public that are concerned about this of of how things work and you know in the end as a as a leader you have to decide what's your pay philosophy how much do you want to be fixed and how much do you want to be variable mm -hmm. now of course i'll always want the maximum amount variable uh, <coughs> apart from when i'm negotiating my own contract that i want the maximum amount fixed um, and then i want to tie the variable part to as much of, to performance as i possibly can um, and and in, in order to uh, get alignment in the company, it's, it's, it's in order. I mean, we want everybody to be fairly paid, um, you know, for what they do. Um, and it's this notion for me around. Um, so, so back back to that point. But we we've never basically explained why a bonus system fundamentally 
uh, fundamentally helps. But I think also got linking back to the public, it's this thing that people need to, as trust has disappeared from whether it's uh, banks or business or government, you know, et cetera, um, it's about what businesses have to do is to make sure that everything is balanced, whether that's uh, profits for shareholders, the rewards back to communities, um, you know, sustainability, all of that. It's all about balance. It's mm -hmm. about making sure that we treat um, our people internally, our customers, our communities, and our shareholders all as equals. Mm -hmm. and, and, that's, and we get the balance in. Sure. And I think that um, and the more we talk about that and the more we report against that, um, the more we can restore trust and earn back the trust that we've lost uh, you know, from, from the public. Because that story, uh, as distracting as it is, is about trust. Mm. I think that's very true. A lot of brands that are doing extremely well at the moment are the brands that people have trust in. And in this turbulent time, um, lots of mudslinging, people, there are pantomime villains all over the place, but at the same time people want things that they can, they, they can believe in and hold on to. So brands that actually give that can do extremely well in a period of and time like this. And values. Exactly. Sense, I want yeah. to buy from companies. I'm prepared to spend money in companies that, I have, that share my values. Yeah. And what it's worth, I do think pay is much too high in large companies in Britain. I mean, I think yeah. it's been decoupled from performance for about 10 years. Mm. And that's led to a situation where the actual quantum is too high. But I don't think the case against it is kind of envy-driven. I mean, to me, the main examples I'd give, the scandal at Barclays for me, scandal is too strong a word, but the, the, the gripe I would have if I were a Barclays shareholder, and it's their business, not ours, is that the bonus pool at Barclays is two and a half or three times the size of the total dividend payout to all shareholders. Now, that really is a problem, and Barclays shareholders ought to be rioting in the streets about that. Um, or if you look at a company like Cable and Wireless Worldwide, which five years ago had this sort of terribly controversial bonuses and bonus to the hilt, and they delivered fantastic dividends to their shareholders got paid terrific bonuses themselves. What did they do? Starved the company of investment because that was what they were bonused on. And now they're sitting as a takeover target looking for itching to be taken over by forces not 100 miles away from here. Mm. <laughs> 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 <coughs> and, and, and that's the destruction of, you know, of, of a company that was viable, that was real. But, but, but I mean... What you're talking about, and that's why you know, sustainability is interesting, because it, it, it does come from biology, ultimately, doesn't it? I mean, it's all to do with trying to find that equilibrium. But isn't right. the problem with the banks that their equilibrium and their, their model is different? Because they've, just, they've got used to so much of the money they make going to the rainmakers, the star performers, or what have you. I mean, how can you, how can you change that in, in the well, long shareholders run? shareholders have to get in there and change it, because if they don't then loopy politicians are going to draft daft legislation no that will have mentioned. all kinds of perverse consequences. As always, it will have cross-party support, this loopy legislation, and it will have all kinds of damaging effects uh, on the structure, which is why I do think shareholders, remuneration committees, have to get their own houses in order. And amongst other things, that probably means rather fewer FTSE 100 uh, executives who are quite committed to high pay, uh, sitting on remuneration committees of other FTSE companies. Sure. Um, it means stopping saying we're top quartile because every company says it's in the top quartile and someone else has to be in the other 75%. Um, so I think there are all kinds of flaws with the present structure. But do you, do, do, are you not a little worried by the, 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 the tone from, from politics, from government over the last sort of two or three months? towards business. I mean, because it has worried me. I mean, and some of Cable's, uh, you know, mutterings at the moment, I think, are actually pretty destructive and damaging, and not, not only to the equilibrium of, of, of the coalition, but I think, you know, he's in danger, if he's not careful, of business feeling that he really, you know, has got it very wrong, and he's, he's, he's not, not arguing for them. And he's the business secretary, after all, isn't he? I, I think some of what he says is a bit odd, but some of what he says is actually quite sensible. I mean, his, letter, his leaked letter to the Prime Minister, I thought, had quite a lot of good sense in it about picking out areas uh, where Britain, not companies, but areas where, where Britain had chances and, and opportunities. And the revival of the automobile industry in this country, and that was thanks to measures put in place by the last government, has quite a lot to do with 
with the governments fostering that sector and saying, look, we can cope with that area. Yeah. Um, I, I'm not, I don't go along with his ideas to chop up the Royal Bank of Scotland and create a, a business bank that's owned by the government and invests in, no doubt, activity in marginal constituencies, sure, absolutely. Uh, depending on who's in power. Um, I think that would be, that, that's a bit dotty. Yeah. But actually, creating the framework and then letting business get on with it, rather than regulating incessantly and, and putting fingers in pies, uh, is what I think government ought to be doing. Mm. So, a question, why don't the Barclays shareholders riot in the streets over this bonus versus dividend fund, do you think? I, I think one problem is that ultimately the Barclays shareholders are pension funds being invested on their behalf by investment, large investment companies who are in exactly the same pay brackets themselves and don't want their own bonuses looked at uh, too closely. Right. But I do think there, there are encouraging signs that the ABI, for example, mm -hmm. is out there saying to the banks, hang on a second, shareholders, which, which means the ABI and its members, deserve a lot more than they're getting mm -hmm. out, out of you. Um, but but you're, you know, you're right, shareholders have been pathetic mm. uh, for a very long time. Uh, and part of being, part of your fiduciary responsibility as an investment manager is arguing for the people whose dividends you're supposed to be sort of pooling in so that can pay all our pensions. Yeah. Because th that's the beneficiaries of this, mm. of the entire capitalist system. The mm. ultimate beneficiaries are really meant to be the community at large. Sure. Yeah. Can I go back to your Come point on the, the, a minute ago on, on government? And um, the, I mean, I does anybody know how many companies in the UK? Go on. How many? Four million companies. Okay, so th there's a concentration of the FTSE 100, very large companies, but the overwhelming majority of companies and the overwhelming majority of the economy is, comes from these other uh, three million, nine hundred and whatever thousand it is. And ours is a you know, medium-sized company. And um, what, when we talk about the long term, what we're doing is trying to figure out what's right for our customers, what's right for our people, and shareholders, and largely um, don't concern ourselves day to day with the government because the government's going to come and go. And then what we do is, in trying to execute our long-term plan, is just navigate around the roadblocks that they keep sticking in our way, yeah. knowing that Vince Cable's going to be out soon, and then somebody else is going to come, and then we're going to get a whole bunch of other things, and half of what they're proposing will never materialize anyway. <laughs> and we just, if we, if we spend any time and, and, oh, by the way, that's why we join things like, for us, the British Retail Consortium Institute of Directors to basically fight on our behalf mm. so that we can get on with the job of, of, uh, of helping it is It is worrying, isn't it? I was speaking, no names mentioned to someone last night who's pretty, pretty close to numbers 10 and 11, and, he's, and he told me that all they're thinking about at the moment is the, the next election. Absolutely everything is focused on making sure that they get back again. Never, never mind the here and now, this month, next month, the rest of this year. And that's, that's, that's just a fundamental problem where, you know, politics and business but, come and together. It, they, you know, that, that's all they care about. And I bet it? it's always been that way. Anyway, listen, we've only got 10 minutes, so I'm, I must let some people from the floor um, make their contributions or indeed ask something of our, of our panel up here. Who, who'd like to um, ask something? Heather, Heather. Uh, I'd just love to ask all of you... Um, uh, how many people you employ, um, and, in, and in Simon's case, how many members there are rather than how many people you employ, because I, I do think that you all talk briefly about people, um, but 800 stores, I mean, you know, how many people is that? It's, it strikes me that um, sustainable, business is about, sustainable business is about people. Taylor Bennett's been going for 30 years this year. Uh, I didn't found it, but it's been going for 30 years this year. We've not had one person leave voluntarily since 2004, and it's that, to me, is a sustainable business. Um, so I'm quite interested in the people element of all these people. How many people? We have 74. Uh, the vast... Just one name? Uh, yes. <laughs> well, it's, uh, it's, actually, I, I feel shamed if I ever walk into the bottling line and I see someone who I don't know. And I make a point of going up and, and making sure I know who they are. Um, so we have 74 people. As I say, most of them are from the local area. We're probably the biggest uh, local employer. Um, we're, uh, as you can imagine, the family businesses as old as ours, we take quite a paternal view of our, uh, of our workers. We, we, we are a family business and we try and live and breathe it, so uh, um, we're 
we, I mean, bonus-wise, we pay some of our sales guys on bonus, but we actually we fix as best we can um, so that people know exactly what they get. And in fact, there's, there's an expectation we find from, from the manual end of, of, of industry. And a, and a lot of the talk that, that, that we, we talk about at a conference like this is actually at, at a very top end, at an intellectual end. But you forget there's a lot of people who actually want to turn up and just get their paycheck and feel that someone appreciates that they've been there and then go home and not think about it anymore. Um, so uh, we, we, we try and do that for, for our guys. And if they want to rise and aspire and, and, and get bigger and better, we'll help them do that as well. How many people work for the IOD? About 300 people work for the IOD uh, in total. We've got 40,000 members who come from the, the full range of businesses. I mean, there are people from top FTSE companies. There are, there are people who are self-employed. But I suppose the great bulk are sort of medium-sized enterprises up and down the country. Darcy? Uh, so we employ about 8,000 uh, people. Um, we also then have a massive uh, peak at uh, Christmas because um, with, with any retail, retailer, but particularly greeting cards, the, um, the, 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 the spike that happens in December, then we'll, we'll probably take on another thousand uh, temporarily um, you know, for, the, for the month of December. But the thing I can tell you, because I'm, I'm more in a turnaround situation, the thing I've learned, and it's not the first one I've done, the thing I've learned... Um, um, w once I uh, brought in a team of management consultants to help on a problem I had um, several times, and what I figured out is I'd paid this group of consultants a quarter of a million pounds to just go and talk to our people in the company at the time. And what I learned from that a few years ago was that all of the answers to anything that you have lie within your people. Primarily for me, for me it's the store manager who's the most important person in the company. Um, and our customers. So th those two groups of people have basically all the answers. And therefore, um, this, the, where you can get decision-making as close to the store manager or as much of it at the store manager as possible, that's what, that's what makes businesses successful and sustainable. Um, and the, one of the things I say, um, say time and time again is that, uh, and I say this, you know, store manager meetings, you know, if I don't turn up to work, nobody's going to know apart from those that have booked a meeting with me. But if the store manager doesn't turn up to work, we're in deep trouble because um, we won't serve any customers and then, you know, that, that, that's the end of it. So I didn't know if you had anything else about people. That no, was no, it. I, I just think it's very interesting. So, um... I think mean, that's a, my story about the, the man who came to see me to deliver bad news and I wanted to have him up against the wall and shake him until he was black and blue. But... What's the point in that? He was delivering a message. It wasn't his decision. Isn't yeah. that actually why we need more banks? Why we need 30 yes. banks in the United yeah. Kingdom? Uh, yeah, yeah. But we, we desperately need that. And we've got this kind of almost conspiracy. And that's where the PPI scandal actually came from, is all these banks, these banks talking to each other and operating what was a racket and has been found to be a racket. Um, because there are only five of them. They all know each other. And oligopoly is the inevitable consequence. Whereas if we had a, a freer market, um, and that probably means we had less regulation, mm. and we had the possibility of banks that could fail, uh, if we had 30 banks, that would be a, a much healthier situation because there would be people competing for your money. Yeah, but does anybody know how this famous new Metro Bank is doing? I have several of them in my area. I pass them by. It's deadly silent no, I think I, I, anecdotally, I've heard it's hard work. There's, a, there's also, I mean, I'm, I don't know much about running banks at all, but I am a consumer, and I haven't been into a branch of my bank for probably 15 years um, and, and do everything. So it's about, you know, the, the physical presence, is no, I think, is no longer required. The, but their Metro's model is a physical as a physical presence, but... Um... I mean, one of the things that we touched on was, the, was the, the sustainability of the family business model. And one of the things that I found interesting over the last few months was the, was the, you know, the, the Facebook IPO. I mean, there's probably one of the most high-profile companies in the world that everyone is fascinated by. And I know there are technical reasons why he has to do that, because in America, I think once you get beyond 500 shareholders, you're at, you actually have to go to market. But you can, you can just see, however 
however lousy a deal anybody who buys into Facebook is going to get, and there's all sorts of different shares, and you know the amount of kind of voting power is going to be small. It's it's the beginning of trouble, and probably the beginning of the end for him. I mean, whatever you think about his portrayal in, in, in the movie. He's clearly somebody who doesn't like being told what to do by other people and has a very strong vision that's a, that, about... That's a classic trait of an entrepreneur. Yeah. Doesn't want to be told what to do. Is strong, has a strong vision, a strong sense of self, um, and, and they're going to... And, and off they go. I mean, that's that, you know, Steve Jobs, Howard Schultz. It's a but, very he, I mean, similar but he's going off into trouble, isn't he? In the same way as Stelios went off into trouble. I mean, Stelios just can't let go of that joystick, can he? However, uh, and he... You know, he's taken the money, um, and yet he is still causing absolute havoc within that company because he's still behaving as if, it, as if it's his. Yeah, but that, that's not about the model. That's about the individual. Yeah. So you take, I mean, if I if, so take Starbucks as an example. Howard Schultz owns less than 3% of the yeah. company, but you're in no doubt uh, who runs that company. Sure. Um, but if you look at the results and the way that, uh, look at the sustainability of results of that company over the last... 40 years, it's pretty, yeah. you know, it's pretty, it's pretty impressive. Um, and, and I think it is run on very sustainable, sustainable lines, not just from a financial perspective, but in terms of how it so ethically sources and, and, and all of that stuff. So it's, I think it's about um, the people that you have in the company. It's about the, it's about the philosophy. It's about the culture and the values. Um, I'm not, you know, the issues that are in EasyJet, are, I don't think are born by the model. I think they're borne by the individuals and the management decisions that are made. I, I think that is terribly important, that, that stewardship, and I think yeah. people like that do a fantastic job. But to me, for all their craziness, the, the wonderful thing about a Howard Schultz or a Mark Zuckerberg or a Stelios is they've created something out yeah. of nothing that has brought huge benefit. I mean, Starbucks has changed my habits completely and lots of other people's. Um, Stelios, and you know, you, we all see the consequences of what they've done, um, and and the same goes for Facebook. And that's the, that's that's the why you need a tension between these two very different kinds of person. And it's the kind of crazy mavericks, who who create those brilliant things that bring such benefits so to disruptive. our society. They're yep. disruptive and innovate. Yeah, it's they do. But I, I, the other thing is about you know if you think about. Um, Boards and the way companies are run. I wonder how many CEOs of public companies, if, if you know, w w if they were truly honest, believe that there's enough tension on their board and enough challenge mm. um, and true and true debate. Um, because I know that I operate better when there's a little bit of tension, and uh, you know, and the, the whole thing on accountability sure. is very high. And and when there is that tension, I just know that I'm, I, you know, I'm better at it. Sure. So, you know, so I, I'm making sure that I've got the strongest board I possibly can. Mm. Um, but, but I wonder, you know, how, how, if CEOs were absolutely honest, how many really believe their board provides that level of oversight and challenge mm. that it, they need? It, it's fascinating that I'm, I just uh, uh, I've agreed to work on a book with Michael Woodford, the Olympus whistleblower. And he's, a, he's obviously British and got to the top of a Japanese corporation but when he was when he was running the business in in Europe and America he changed the the way in which they had board meetings from a rectangular table to a round table so he actually made them all look at each other as they were having board meetings but one of the things he says about the way in which it, it, it worked in, in in Japan was that you went in there in an extraordinarily formal way and actually everything had been decided before Fine, that board absolutely. meeting took place yep. That, that there was no there was no argument there was no tension some somewhere in a smoke filled room and apparently they still smoke at, at the at the uh, board meetings at Olympus that they decided what was going to happen so everybody went in there and nodded and off they went next thing you know 1.7 billion dollars had sort of disappeared somewhere strange and it's um that I mean it's not antagonism but that creative tension is vital isn't it and it becomes more and more difficult to maintain I think the larger an organisation becomes. Because they get they get very anxious when they get big, that actually if they're all you know if they are having discussions and arguments about things somehow they're they're going to be in at a risk of weakening themselves and not performing well. Yeah, I mean one one of the other things though we've not really talked about and that's the impact of the customer on decision making in a, in a, in a, that that a company has and the impact of it. So take any of the companies we've talked about today. You know, EasyJet, or you know, it's in the end, the, the the customers having to buy into the product, and the customers deciding, 
And there's fundamentally a lot of choice. You know, certainly in, in retail, there's a ton of choice that, 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 that people have. And um, I, think, I think the customer has a, lot of, um, has a lot of power. And if you take some of the um, large companies where, you know, take Kodak versus Fuji, and, and, how, and what's happened to those two companies, or BlackBerry versus Apple, and it's um, when, when companies don't change, they don't innovate, but also customers um, can, can vote move very quickly. Um, and uh, I mean, that's a significant uh, impact and understanding, um, it's not about, too many companies, I think companies that fail a lot focus on their product yeah. as opposed to focusing on what their product does for the customer. Sure. And as customers' needs change, um, if they're not changing with it or leading the change, then actually that's what makes for, for lack of sustainability. Mm. Um, I wonder how much of this is a question of um, economic and financial literacy more generally. Um, and I say that really for two reasons. First of all, the vast majority of politicians and regulators have never run a business. They've actually not run anything outside of politics, many of them. And secondly, if you look at most media, um, uh, including and especially broadcast media, most coverage of business is not coverage of business, it's coverage of economics. It's the macro, and it's actually coverage of politics through the prism of economics. And I, I do wonder whether a lot of what we're talking about, from executive remuneration, shareholder activism downwards, is simply a function of the fact that people really don't understand this stuff. They don't understand that if a company delivers strong shareholder returns, that's a really good thing. The issue isn't how much they pay their executives necessarily, certainly not if it's a tiny fragment of the total remuneration to shareholders, which is normally the case, uh, nor is it, you know, gosh, outrageous super profits, you know, these people need to be reined in, pulled back, because the shareholder returns feed into people's pension funds and their savings and everything else. But that, that connection seems to be lost. So I wonder whether the, in the political sphere and in the media sphere, a lot of this is down to those those individuals in those areas yeah. not understanding. I mean, I was thinking. I mean, the BBC did try, didn't it? If you think about the, the what, you know, one of the kind of main outlets for information. When Dyke was the director general, he specifically bought Jeff Randlin to be the business editor because so many people that he met in business, and he was a businessman, were saying, you know, your business coverage is lousy because it's all about, you know, watchdog and just kicking companies one after the other. It's all, yeah. you know, negative. And Jeff did a brilliant job actually doing that because he had, a, you know, he had the proper common touch. He was a brilliant business journalist and a really good communicator. And I think, I mean, the trouble with what's happened with Robert subsequently is that his, his story has become intensely political, hasn't right. it? And, but, but you can't, and you, you know, it's not taking any, anything away from him that because he's the guy that one envies more than anybody else. His contacts book is just fantastic and he gets those scoops one after the other. But... What, what's happened in the last few years in terms of business media is, it, is, it, is it, it's all become political. It's all become about the crash. It's become about pay. And in a, in a funny sort of way, we're, we're back to that point we were at before where, 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 where business is, is, is something that is, you know, trying to dupe us, you know, uh, take, take our money away and, and behave badly. And I'm not quite sure when that balance is going to be redressed at the moment because it's... It's, it's tricky, and as you said, even, you know, even on the front page of the FT this morning, they, they've gone with Big Bad Bob, haven't they? And, um, as you, and the HBOS story is extraordinary, isn't it? I was reading yeah. it at 6 o'clock this morning, and I've, no, I've never met this, this famous bloke who was always kind of there in the background behind Philip Green and all the rest of them, and suddenly you're realising what the hell he was up to. And what a disaster that was. And then at a cocktail party, the Prime yep. Minister meets the Chairman of Lloyd's and destroys a bank yep. over a half-hour conversation, muscling in on forcing this... I mean, it's mad. This, these, are, these are real scandals. Can we let the gentleman over in the corner there have a quick word? Thank you. Um, um, aren't you missing a more fundamental change or trend in the economy uh, which is partly about the financialization of the economy, the vast amounts of money that are now within the financial sector. And isn't all this problem about explaining business and the banks and not having good stories about the banks because people in general are intuitively feeling that there's, and this is empirically 
provable as well that there is a fundamental separation going on between the rewards going to banks and the financial sector and the social value that that sector performs. Nobody disputes the value of lending to small businesses and helping mom and pop companies uh, grow, but there is an increasing sensation that uh, the vast amounts of money being traded in zero-sum trades between hedge funds um, performs no essential social value. The claim is that this levels out markets, transmits information in markets. is very hard to square with the reality of quant trading of um, you know, very large amounts of money going on kind of minuscule margins um, within the market uh, performed in microseconds. Um, this fundamental political social problem, which perhaps Marx would have recognized, is something that is, is a more fundamental problem. is isn't just about the Daily Mail failing to sell, sell stories or Vince Cable's short-termism, but it is actually a fundamental change in the nature of our economy in the 21st century, which somehow we have to address. Mm. And it's not necessarily addressed through policy. It's perhaps a cultural change. It's perhaps through a change in the nature of the way we think about ownership, mm -hmm. that we cannot expect people to educate themselves about business and the financial se sector if they do not fundamentally feel that they have a stake. I mean, it was, it was interesting. Adair Turner's comment about, you know, the, the, the limits of social usefulness of banking, he didn't go that one stage further to say what, what, what he thinks, you know, what they should be stopped from doing by legislation, did he? And that, I mean, maybe, you know, it'd be interesting to see what his thoughts on that might be. Um, no, you can't. Where's the consumer? Where's the, where's the, the yes, because we've never, we've never had that conversation. This fundamentally as a human being, although I know it was available and the reg regulators didn't stop it, etc. but also I fundamentally live beyond my means and I'm responsible for that and I can't blame the bank or the government if I live beyond my means. We're going to have two more points because I'm getting some beckoning that we're needed down there. But Henry... I was going to pick up on the point about how um, banks will, or financial institutions will go where they can to make their money. And it's, it's interesting through the whole of this conversation, we're talking about finance and that's the agenda our, our chairman set, which is fine. But um, one of the things I think is, is, is something we, we, we haven't talked about um, and doesn't get talked about enough is that in fact we've got a situation now where hedge funds and financial speculators actually control 60% of the world's basic foodstuffs. Yeah. And that's up from about 10% 15 years ago. And so fundamentally food prices now are being dictated by financial markets, Don't not by Don't tell me Glencore's got your apples. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I don't believe so. I, I mean, it, it hasn't. That there are. In, I see it in my business. I see inexplicable high prices of apple concentrate. Wow. And I don't well, know why hang, that hang is. on, hang on. Thank you, everyone. Thank you to uh, our panel. That was that was terrific. And you know, this is a conversation that, that that can go on for the rest of the day. But as it's now twenty past, we've got to get in the um, in the cars and go down the hill again. So thank you very much, everybody. Well done. <laughs>